This morning I'd like to read uh, two different verses that are both about staring at Jesus. When I said last week that I would talk about the process of spiritual growth, I'm not sure what you might have expected for the first message. But staring at Jesus might sound rather simplistic. We have a habit of making things complicated in our lives, don't we? Making things bigger and more complicated and harder than they should be. And, um, you know, that's reflected in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there was a man named Naaman who was not an Israelite. He was a foreigner, and he came to uh, Israel's prophet because he had this skin condition. What can I do? prophet said, uh, go dip yourself in the river. I think it was seven times. I might be off on that number. But, um, <laughs> and he was kind of disgusted. I was like, what? You're asking me, a general, a mighty man of valor? You see, the ancient world, the, the idea is if we do some great deed or task, then we can appease the gods and they will do what we want. And he was almost insulted that they'd say, go dip in the water. And the prophet told him, if I had asked you to do some great deed, would you have not done it? Yes, I'd have done it. God simply wanted Naaman to show his faith, to trust him, and to realize it was not by his great deed that he would be healed, but rather by God's mercy that he would be healed. And so we talk about staring at Jesus. Just as Moses, in the wilderness, lifted up a brass snake, when the people of God had been complaining, murmuring, speaking against God, and God sent a swarm of snakes of deadly vipers among them, and they were being bitten, and they were dying, and they called out for relief, God, save us. And he held up. Under God's direction, a brass serpent. And those who were to be healed did not have to create, uh, do some mighty act of valor. They simply looked in faith. They believed God. And they looked and were healed. And Jesus in the New Testament referenced that story. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so it is we simply look in faith to the cross of Christ, not looking at our own righteousness, which God says is nothing but filthy rags in his sight, but we depend wholly and completely on the righteousness of God. We throw ourselves at his mercy. I cannot do anything, God, but you can do everything. And so we simply trust him. And so when we read these two verses that tell us that our lives will be transformed simply by looking at Jesus. You can scoff 
You can doubt. You can say, <coughs> what's that going to do? Or you can trust God when he says, when the father says, look at my son, and I will change you to become like him. The first verse we're going to read is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I want to ask if you would stand as we read that. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father God, may we look to you. May we look to your spirit. May we look to your son. May our eyes be fixed and focused. And may our lives be transformed as we grasp the beauty, the holiness, the wonder that you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. The message is not long today because the message is simple. But in 2 Corinthians, as we start back with that verse... He says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. In other words, he's saying that we, as we look at Jesus, we become more and more like his image. Jesus is reflected back into our lives. We do not have light of our own goodness, of our own holiness, of our own, but as we look at Jesus, his goodness, his holiness, his kindness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, all these and more, they are reflected off of him and onto us. We are like the moon to the sun. Our brightness is not of our own, but our radiance comes from how close we are to Jesus. And the more his light reflects on us, the more we show to others. But he starts that verse with the words, with unveiled face. And in the verses previous, he hearkens back, he looks back, or he refers to a story in the Old Testament where Moses was on the mountain receiving the, the Ten Commandments and the Word of God for the people of God. He was, he was receiving all that the people needed. 
And he would come down off this mountain. And his face would be glowing like an angel. The brilliance, the radiance, the brightness coming off. And the people of God, the people of Israel, when he came down, he called them to speak to them. And they came into his presence. They looked at him and they said, it's too much, Moses. It's too much. We can't take, we can't take all that. Put a veil over your face, Moses. They literally told this man of God, put a veil over your face. Cover yourself up because we don't want to see all that. It's too much for us. What Paul is saying is that even today as Christians, we have complete access to the light and the glory and the fullness of God's presence in our lives. But many of us will make a choice. I love Jesus, but I don't want to get carried away. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to go too far with religion. I don't want to go overboard. And so what we will say without ever saying it consciously or clearly, we will make a subconscious decision in our mind and we'll say, oh, whoa, 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 veil on Jesus. I mean, yes, I like your blessing on my life. I, I like it when you heal someone I pray for. I like it when you bless my life. But I, I only want so much. I really don't want all of you. Because I like you, but I like my stuff. I like my things. I like my hobbies. I like my relationships. And I want to cling and hold on to all these and I want to give you this much control and this much influence in my life, but I kind of want to keep these things all to myself. I don't want to surrender them. I don't want to get radical. I don't want to be a holy roller. I don't want to be too much. So put the veil on, Jesus. Put the veil on. And so we get enough Jesus just to continue on as average, ordinary, cultural Christians who go to church, put something in the plate, say nice things, be good people. And yet our lives do not change. And we wonder why. We wonder why. It's the same. We wonder why this Christianity thing is not what we've been promised. Because we haven't tasted all of Christ. We've said, give me the light one. <laughs> give me a little bit. Keep on that veil, Jesus. But God said, I want you to behold my son Jesus unveiled. I want you to search my word and look at the words and actions of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as he walked this earth for 33 years, as he loved people with a, a reckless love, with abandonment, he gave himself to others. I want you to look and stare 
and make that your focus. And I will transform you and I will change you. You know, there's only one unblockable goal in this life. And that's becoming more like Jesus. Nobody else in the entire world, I don't care whether you're inside a jail cell or out. I don't care whether you're in a democracy or a dictatorship. I don't care whether you're young or old, single or married. Whatever your circumstance or situation is, people can block you and your hopes and your dreams for almost anything else in life. And you can get frustrated and aggravated because you have not fulfilled what you wanted. But the only person that can block you from being more like Jesus is you. So if you've blamed it on how your parents raised you, on the way your boss is treating you, on how your spouse doesn't respect you or love you, on the way your children treat you, your classmates, your teachers, whoever, if you blame it on anybody else, God says, no, no, no. You're in complete control. And me and each and every one of you, we all have it exactly as much Jesus in our life as we've opened ourselves up to. And the Jesus that we don't have, the part of us that is unsurrendered and unfilled by him, is the part that we've put up a veil. And we've said, that's too much. Too much, Jesus. Then we turn over to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 11 is known as the Chapter of faith. Hebrews 11 begins, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. In other words, faith was always a key. Even back in the Old Testament, faith was always the key. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then what is called the hall of faith in the Bible, the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 is a timeline of down through history, starting with uh, Cain and Abel and going down through history of the great men and women of faith who by faith lived their lives and served God and honored him. And all the rest of that chapter is about those heroes of the faith. And so then we get to chapter 12. And he says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? And I imagine an ancient Greek or Roman stadium and all of those who've gone before us in Christ. I think this is what, what uh, is being pictured here. All those who've gone before, their race is done. They have finished. They have crossed the finish line. That They are now in the stadium and they are cheering us on is the imagery we're getting here. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Each of us are running a race. We're to run as to win that race. What does winning look like? Well, we know from the next verse, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As I was thinking about this topic of staring at Jesus this week, I was reminded of an incident from my childhood. Um, this is one that I've never even shared, even with my wife, because I really just honestly haven't thought about it. But it was about my, my first ever romantic feelings. <sighs> and I want to tell you, this story is a grand, epic fail. <laughs> uh, it did not end well, let me tell you. But let me backtrack. Let me go here and set a little... About sixth grade, I started noticing that those dumb, stupid, filled with cooties girls that I had despised all these years, they were going through some changes. And things were starting to get interesting in the sixth grade, and I admitted this to no one. Girls were still ugly, stupid, and I hated them all. But in, on the inside, things were getting interesting. But these were these same girls that ugh, they'd been yuck ever since kindergarten. I, I didn't know what was going on, but I wasn't going to admit anything. But in my school, elementary went through sixth grade, and junior high, the next year, seventh grade, I moved up. And when I moved up to seventh grade, oh, those were still all those same stupid, ugly, blah, 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 seventh grade girls I'd gone to school with forever, but oh, in the eighth grade, now there was a real woman. She was no mere little stupid girl. She was, oh. And, and her name was Christy. And I thought, oh, this is the one. This is it. Be still my beating heart. And I just was filled at the beginning of seventh grade with thoughts of Christy and and every chance I got, I, I wanted to look at Christy. I wanted to see Christy. I wanted to be around Christy. And I felt surely she was going to feel the same way too. And she did about a boy named Adam who was also in the eighth grade. I, of course, did not realize this. I thought surely she must return my emotions because they were so strong. They had to be meant to be. And I remember one day, her friend Heather, very kindly and very lovingly, came to me and said, Tim, you got to stop following her around like a puppy dog, and you got to stop staring. And I'm like, Mr. Cool? Me? No, no, no. I, you're, you're confused. I have not. But absolutely, in that moment, I knew that is exactly what I had done. And let me tell you something about that very sad episode. <laughs> I learned that uh, romantic things don't always work out from that very first time. But, you know, uh, I learned, though, that I realized looking back, you know, no one had to force me. No one had to say, Tim, if you like that girl, you better stare at her. 
Tim, you better follow her. Tim, you better place yourself in position where you're going to be standing there looking all cool whenever she comes by. Do you know that no one, my dad didn't have to give me a talk. My friends didn't have to give me a talk. No one had to urge me or tell me or say, this is your duty. This is what you ought to do. Because I was captivated with Christy. I was infatuated. I was eat up with her for those three weeks of the beginning of my seventh grade year. It was epic, I told you. I'm not talking about you have to look at Jesus. If you're a good Christian, you ought to focus on Jesus. I'm saying that our vision and our direction is a barometer of our love and affection for him. And the more captivated we are by the glory of our Lord, and the more we are filled by love for him, the more we will look at him. And no one will have to tell us, now get back on track, look at Jesus because remember, as my eyes were focused on Christy, I just naturally went wherever Christy went. And when our eyes are focused on Jesus, we're going to follow him. We're going to be in step with him. We're going to be in sync with him. We're going to want to be in the middle of everything that Jesus has for us. Now, let's be real world honest. If you're listening and you're being truthful to yourself, you might be saying right now, I'm not that infatuated with Jesus, if I'm honest. If someone asked me in Sunday school, do you love Jesus? I'd say, oh, yes, I do. I can tell you when I join the church. I love my church. I love coming to church and the people and the worship. But if we're honest, to put it in terms where might understand the honeymoon's over. I've kind of lost that first love. I've kind of gotten to a place where I say, yeah, I, I love Jesus. But I'm not captivated with him. I'm not eat up with him. If I'm be honest, there's a lot of other things <laughs> that I'm looking at. And money, and power, success, or problems, illness, broken relationship, some combination, one of these things or some combination of these things has captured my focus and I am intently staring on everything else but Jesus. And if you find yourself in that place, You simply have to ask yourself, do I love my God enough to rekindle my love for him? Because just like in every marriage, there will come a time in which things are, <laughs> they're not quite at the honeymoon level anymore. And you will make a choice, whether out loud or just in your heart, you will make a choice, well, I'm going to stick this out, or I'm going to get out of this. Either way, 
the same ideas, this is just how it is. Or you will say, I am going to rekindle the flame, the fire, the passion. I am not going to let my relationship with my spouse be this way. In the very same way, you will make a decision about your relationship with God. It can drag on out. I won't be an apostate. I won't go join another religion. I won't denounce God. I'm in it for the long haul. And, and you can just exist as a Christian for the rest of your days. And you will get what average, ordinary Christian people get, which is a life that's really very unremarkable because it's very little difference between them and the rest of the world. It's caught up with money and bills and family and finances and everything else. Or you can say, Jesus, <laughs> there's a gap here. There's a distance here between us, and it's on me. Because you've never once taken your eyes off me, God. But I've taken my eyes off you. My eyes have been captivated by other things. My eyes have been dragged away from you and your kingdom and your righteousness and your purpose from my life. And God, I don't want it to be that way anymore. And you simply begin to immerse yourself on a daily basis in Jesus. How do you do that? It's just like if you want to get in better shape, you make a decision. You don't just say, I wish I was in better shape. You change your time schedule, you change your habits, your eating, your working out, you get in better shape. You want to improve your marriage relationship? You change your habits, you change the way you talk, the expectations. You want to get a better relationship with God. You make Him a priority in your life. I don't have to watch Netflix for three hours every night. I don't have to shoot the breeze or search for the internet or do whatever. There are optional hours in your life that you are choosing to fill with other things. And there are other hours in your life when you're doing your thing and you're leaving God out of it. And you simply choose, Jesus, I want to be eat up with you. I'm going to look to you. And we look to Jesus by looking at his word, we read not for intellect, but we read like a love letter. We say, God, I want you wholly and completely. I'm done flirting with other things. I want all of you. God's eyes have never come off of you. And it's your choice and it's my choice whether our eyes will keep wondering or whether our eyes will be fixed on Jesus. The Bible describes him as the author and finisher of our faith. Other translations say the captain and finisher of our faith. But my favorite translate that word Jesus the pioneer of our faith. That was what finally got it for me. That's what it clicked. 
when I realized that Jesus is the trailblazer, that he set the example of how to live a life that pleases God. And if he set the example, as he's been the pioneer, the trailblazer that's gone on before, if we keep our eyes on him, we'll follow the path that he made. And just as the Father was pleased with him, the Father will be pleased with us. What are you staring at? I don't want you to tell me out loud, but I want you to be honest with yourself and with God. You're staring at something. All of us, every single one of us, are staring at something in our lives. That is something, someone, something has caught your attention and it's the focus of your life. If it's anything but Jesus, I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with God. And I hope you'll choose to refocus, to fix your eyes and your focus on Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as the hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We all have these tendencies within us because we still live in a sinful world and even more than that, we still have the sinful flesh to contend to and it calls out to us, God, you have told us to listen to your voice instead, to the voice of truth, the voice that will not lead us in the broad and winding way which leads to destruction but you have called us to paths of life. And I pray that we would choose to fix our vision, our eyes, our gaze on Jesus. Help that, help us in our weakness to admit our sin and to humbly return to where you've called us to be. Help us to turn our eyes to you. God, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time is for you to respond to God, for you to do business with Him. You can simply say, that was another message, another worship service attended, and you can check it off your list, and you can go home and stay exactly the same. Or you can choose to bow before Almighty God and say, God, fix my gaze, focus my eyes. Bring me into greater love and passion for you. It's your choice. No one can force you. No one can make you. You'll choose. Do you want the veil or do you want more?